a low point for us all. <laughs> I mean, what did we expect? This is the man who started talking about love actually as soon as he got into Yes, no, yeah. and then there, no, he, he has said on record that his least favorite Christmas film is a Christmas carol because Tiny Tim should get a job. No! No! Oh, yeah. Can we please keep that in the podcast? Can you bring that yeah. up? Baby <laughs> Thatcher, yeah. Um, like, he, it was in a Times interview. He was like, I don't like a Christmas carol, Pine Tim, get a job. I was like, the poor kid is crippled, Leo. I am not okay. Before this episode starts, we'd like to provide a trigger warning for all those listening. We're providing a trigger warning for mentions of abuse, mentions of abuse against women, against children, bodily harm, suicide and death. As always, we'll be linking helplines in the bio below. Do not be afraid to reach out if you need to. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to Are You Two In Love Or With Evo Byrne and Lucy Holmes or Lucy Holmes and Evo Byrne, depending which way you like us. Today we are joined by two lovely, wonderful, charming and amazing guests. Um, we are joined by Tara Gilsonen, who is the ex-chair of the Young Greens, and Jessica Daly, who is a makeup artist who did her dissertation on mother and baby homes. So would you <laughs> like to introduce yourselves further? Tara, do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm Tara Gelsonen. I was the Young Green chairperson for around about a month. And I resigned on, I think it was Friday, over well, a lot of issues. One of them was the handling of the mother and baby homes bill. Oh, sorry. Oh, I thought Tara was after... Um... <laughs> After freezing, sorry. Um, yeah, my name is Jessica Daly, as Lucy said, and I am a graduate of UCC. I have a history and politics degree, and basically, as part of my undergrad for my dissertation, I looked into mother and baby homes, and that's kind of where my expertise comes in on today. Gosh, and um, we recognize that these topics may be particularly heavy for some people. So obviously we are providing a trigger warning. Um, and, you know, this whole interview is not meant to be, you know, it, it, it's meant to be a calm and civilized discussion. We're not going to try and open any doors that shouldn't be opened because this topic is so sensitive. Um, and there is such misinformation about it, as me and Lucy have talked about before. It is so hard to stay level-headed and calm um, about everything that's happened within the past week. So Tara, could you really just talk to us about the events that happened within the doll and also your experience with like Green TDs in general with responding to your queries and concerns? Absolutely, yeah. So um, I was informed about this bill like I think a lot of people were like I woke up and it was the first thing I saw on Twitter that morning and sure I was as confused as everybody else as to why there'd been no discussion around this why people hadn't been consulted why the minister had just decided right I'm going to do this right now and hadn't seemed to put any forward planning into it so basically um lots of experts in the area, lots of survivors, lots of people who've been very heavily affected by and know a lot about this issue were campaigning against what the government were doing. And they said that they were trying to seal the archives for 30 years. 
the retort that was given from the government is that if we don't do this, the archives will be lost. Now, this is where everything gets a bit tricky because no one can agree on whether or not this is the truth. I personally don't think it is, but um, as I have no formal experience in law whatsoever, it was very hard for me to understand. So um, I emailed um, Minister Roger Gorman as the chairperson of the Young Greens asking him to not do this and to you know, give an explainer as to what was happening because a seven tweet thread using a lot of legalese didn't put anybody's minds at ease. I got no reply. I contacted TDs, some of whom left the phone. Uh, one of them actually said to me that they were confused about what was happening with the bill and it's passed through the doll soon after. Um, and yeah, like the whole experience of the bill, like me and Lucy were talking about it, like two amendments and barely two debates on such a really difficult subject to actually like talk about, I think, especially as an Irish woman, Irish women, as we all are, it is a terrifying kind of realization that, you know, 20, well, not 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we could have been in that position where we were put into a mother and baby home or a Magdalene laundry. Um, and Jessica, would you like to distinguish for us because this is such a prominent conversation. The difference between a mother and baby home and a Magdalene laundry, can you explain to our listeners kind of like the basics of what these two terms mean? Because they're kind of reported as the same thing yeah. and it's just horrible. So there's actually like, there's no, if you Google it, there's no, extreme definition it's not going to give you what a Magdalene laundry was what a mother and baby home was it's kind of all like you said it's all very hearsay and like this is what this person said it's not a lot of clarification around it but during my research I spent a lot of times our time up in the archives in Dublin and actually the commission of investigation that's going on at the moment was like my bread and butter for my dissertation like I spent months going through them and I know them like the back of my hand um from reading them and consulting with my own advisor I kind of came to the conclusion that a Magdalene laundry was more so run by the one religious order and now I I'm not familiar with the 2012 McAleese report um but it seems that there wasn't as much state involvement with that now proof I'm not sure but mother and baby homes was like solely funded by the state and then run by the religious orders and then it depends what home you look at like Besborough would have kind of been let take in a way by the nuns whereas Toom was funded and really Galway County Council was really involved so it depends on what way you look at them but to kind of put it in simpler terms it seems as though I'm not saying this is fact that mother and baby homes is more state involved and Magdalene Laundries is more religious involved. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the like the involvement with kind of like the poor laws and the establishment of workhouses kind of facilitated all of this to happen so whenever I think of both of them I always think state involvement before I actually think church involvement oh, yeah. because like their existence actually depends on the other knowing almost it's like they cannot they go exist. hand in hand yeah. yeah I think especially in Ireland like we see it that and I, I'm going to say historically but not even historically it's only in the last 20 years that the church has really released its grip on this country but they are intertwined they are fitcha fucha together which is the Irish term I always think of when I think of um 
the Catholic Church and the state, they are so intertwined between each other. It's not like one's the left hand and one's the right hand. It might as well be the same hand and they're just different fingers. Exactly. They're mm. so, like, if we look at the history of the Irish state since it, since it was established, um, and I mean, the, the Irish Republic, obviously not, I'm not even going to go into British history. We see that the Catholic, the Catholic Church has a massive, massive hand to play in it. And that the Catholic Church was, you know, in in basically in control as much as the government was Mm -hmm. like the whole commission just seems rushed it seems like a band-aid on a wound that needs like you know at least 10 rounds of stitches it is like the commission was never meant to solve anything I think I think I and I just do agree with what Tara was saying it just seems so out of the blue and in a way like just almost pushed through so people wouldn't ask questions but now people are like hang on this is really suspicious um so what were kind of your the responses that you got from TDs Tara in response to the the bill because like none of us knew what was going on when we first heard of it yeah absolutely well I I we the young green committee have a group chat so I sent it in first thing and I was like does anybody know what is happening here and in there, we have like legal minds. We have people that are very, very entwined with the inner workings of the doll. They always know what's coming up. And they said, I have absolutely no idea. So I obviously emailed Roderick and I said, here, basically I said, what is this? Explain right now. And it was only afterwards that I found out that anything with the title mother and baby homes was going straight into the spam boxes and all there. So all the emails were getting about this apparently didn't reach them at all. They went straight to spam. Yeah, so he never saw my email. Uh, I had a few TDs who I'm not going to name, but um, one of them was honestly like, this is in the doll today and I have no idea what Roderick is doing. So afterwards, I'm still in contact with a lot of them over this because I want answers. And if I can try to get them for people, I will. And... Mm-hmm. Um, sat down with Roderick asked him what is going on and now Roderick is a very respected legal mind and you would think that Roderick knows what he's doing here and then the EU turns right and says no 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 this is contrary to EU law so the funny thing about the Green Party and what I've always said about them since they went into is they're completely out of their depth and this is just the latest example of this like they are absolutely floundering. Um, and for our listeners sake can you explain what who Roderick is and what his job is within the doll. Absolutely. So Roderick is a TD for I'm going to say it's Dublin Midwest or maybe no, it's Dublin West. And um, he was a professor of law, I think, for a long time before he was elected. He is very well respected by everyone I've ever met in the Green Party. Everyone seems to think he has his heart in the right place, and he's now the minister for, among other things, children. And basically, this came, this fell within his remit. So he's a first-time TD. He, this was landed straight in his plate. He became minister out of the blue. So again, it ties into what I'm saying about floundering. Like I don't, he's a legal mind, but I don't think he has any idea what he's doing. Because, like, naturally, you would think that he'd be put in a position like defense or you know justice or somewhere where because even in this past few days 
um, Helen McEntee, who is the current Minister for Justice, she has completely um, disregarded women's rights in regards to how they can be questioned during a trial of sexual assault. And I was like, this is this is our representation. This is our this is our government actually allowing ministers. And you would hope, and like I did hope initially, because I had a, a, an interview with um, this lovely girl called Megan Sims, who's a campaigner for revenge porn. And we discussed that maybe because it's a woman as the Minister of Justice, we'll see, you know, improvements in regards to women's kind of protection. And this comes out and it's like, is Ireland ever going to be a country for women? Because like, you think that, you know, we were progressing forwards repeal with everything. And now it's like a complete 180. It's like, let's ignore everything, all all of our past mistakes and just continue setting up these institutions which don't serve anyone but the government for profit. It's just so reminiscent of us. Definitely. The other thing I'd say about that, sorry, I'll just come in. The other thing I'd say about that is that it's been such a bad week for Irish women that that nearly got lost in the news. Yeah. Which was incredible to me. Like, I found that in the comments under a a tweet and I'd never heard about it. So I don't know if that was her trying to bury that under the rug. This is the first time I've heard of it. Mm -hmm. It is like, it's been such a week. It's been a week. It's only Thursday as well. Like, we're recording this on a Thursday. And this, you know, because even with my research that I did over this week into the actual commission, I found out that only 14 named mother and baby homes were investigated in it. So it isn't even all of them. It is just 14 that were kind of the most prominent, um, including two of them. And it's just, you wonder what else are they hiding you know with all of this and Jessica you particularly theorized on reasons why the government were rushing yeah all the process and like why why do you think they were rushing all this kind of news like sweeping it under the carpet yeah you know? so I just want to make sure for all the listeners this is all of my own inner workings in my head based off the research I found this mightn't be fact so um basically when I was doing my own research like I never went looking for state involvement because like my own personal opinion of the whole thing was that like they obviously were involved because it would have had to pay for the women to be in the homes but like I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that they knew what was going on and like as I, I initially wanted to look into like the societal view of the scarlet woman which was what these women were known as because even like when you were talking about there the like um the view of women at the moment in Ireland with the recent bill being passed in the doll and all that kind of stuff it reminds me of one of the lines I found I can't remember now what minister said it back in the 20s it was that these homes were made to take um, the women out of workhouses, which were what there was there before, mother and baby homes, and take them away from the respectable poor. So like they viewed these women as being so like outside of society that they weren't even, like the poor were better than them, do that kind of way. So that's what it brings me back to. So like when I was looking Mm -hmm. for research on that, this is when I came across state involvement. And my first thing I actually found Mm -hmm. was, is that when the commission was going through um, Toom and they were researching that, they found within 
Galway County Council's minutes of meetings. I don't know, was it 1979 or if it was the early 70s? I can't remember the exact year, but they found a letter and it was written from a building society, whoever was building them, I think it was a housing estate, um, after Toome's closed down, everything wasn't running anymore and they were building a housing estate next to Toome. And there was a letter found, it was handwritten and everything, and it said on it, um, there was something about the buildings and then something about this particular builder finding all the dead bodies, all the dead babies. And he basically was asking the government relevant minister back in Dublin, what's the story here? And oh this letter was stamped, but by that relevant minister, so the commission knew who that, that the government had seen this and that they knew kind of what was going on. And the commission actually went back to someone who worked within the doll at this particular time and asked them, look, do you know who wrote this? Do you know who received it? Have you any idea of basically what's going on? And the person actually remembered who got it, but that person was dead by the time the commission got to them. So they had no chance to go to visit this person to say, look, did you put it forward to your colleagues? Did you look at it more? And that's when I kind of went, oh my God, is there a lot more here that we don't know about? And even if you look at um, the Galway County Council meeting, or meeting minutes, there was actually, I can't recall the exact year, I think it was the 70s or the 80s, and they were going building, do you know the little garden where they found the you can't call them septic tanks they're second chamber structures is what they say in the commission reports where they found them they were actually the council were going building a children's playground inside their gang right and there's an aerial photograph of that land and these were all in the files now for the council so they knew exactly what was down there and on the aerial photograph where the second chamber structures were found it's marked out where the burial ground was and it says baby's burial ground from oh. the home on this aerial photograph. Um, and as far back as the 70s? 70s or the 80s, one of the two. Oh um, my God. Yeah, and there was another thing then as well where there was like a list of, um, basically they were going to cost how much this playground was going to cost. Um, there was something about coffins being mentioned, but the commission actually in this report stated we were unable to figure out if these were bought or who they were first. So you can't exactly say that they were digging up anything because the commission even said themselves we couldn't figure it out. But in it, it says in pounds that levelling the ground where the children were buried were going to cost like £1,200 and then building a swing set on site of children's burial grave or a slide or something like that. So that's when I initially went, okay, what other homes are here? What other state involvement is there? Like the council, Galway County Council knew about it. Mm-hmm. Like it just baffles me. Like it's, I, it's I'm sitting here with my jaw on the floor. Like I, you know, you kind of do have faith in your country. You kind of hope, oh God, like, like that, like even as you said it, you didn't go looking for state involvement because you assumed like, okay, yeah, I know they were definitely involved because they had to be giving the money, but you assumed they didn't know what was happening, but they did. And that's terrifying to think about. It's terrifying to have faith in the establishment and have faith in your country to have that shattered so easily. And we, we've seen it happen so many times. And in this country, I think it's a very much one step forward, two steps back. 
And I think mm-hmm. we saw this with repeal, but we were like, we are a very forward thinking country. And I think as a population, we are, but the establishment is definitely still stuck in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah. become more and more evident and the language around what's happening at the moment and even the way it's reported is bordering on not good is the only words I'm going to use without getting myself into trouble. Yeah. Um, like, But even if you look at how Besbra was... Um, funds are started up or whatever like the nuns who started up Besbra they didn't go looking to set up this home they were just a normal nun place um I can't exactly a nun place um a convent and they were just normal people I have it written in my notes what their names were but I if I change from my screen I'll lose it so I can't but Basically, they were approached by the Cork Board of Guardians, which is basically the equivalent of council in today's day, what that was back then. And they were asked to come set up this home because Mm -hmm. the Cork workhouses, they needed to take these scarlet women away from the respectable poor. And would they come and they helped them buy, um, oh, sorry, I tell a lie, um, Westminster helped um, this convent buy um, the grounds of Besbra and Besbra was actually referred to them as the perfect site for a mother and baby home. Yeah, because like Besbra, because um, I was looking into kind of the HSC adoption um, allegations because obviously they've never been outrightly proven, um, but it is, you know, fairly concrete that thousands, yeah. um, you know, if not tens of thousands of children are currently residing in places like the UK, United States, who were born from Irish women, Irish parents, and were illegally adopted. Um, and Bespera, especially because they did um, actually, they had to take note of what children died. Obviously, these records are hidden. But in Bespera, you see in the 1950s, there's a massive jump from the amount of children dying. It goes way down. And that's because adoption legislation was brought in especially I think for profit um you know and it's just and like and most of the time um apparently allegedly you know you have to keep saying parents were told um oh your child is like still in the home you need to send money for them to be looked after and and they were gone they weren't they weren't there there was a lot of just pop in for a second um because with regards to the numbers coming down in the 50s or whatever, um, I told Eva this, but I suppose I better make it known. Um, my oldest brother was actually born in Besbra. Um, When my mom was 17, she got, well, she was 16, she got pregnant and she wasn't kicked out or anything, but this was in 1982. Um, she wasn't kicked out, but she felt as though society was so against our pregnant women at that stage she actually put herself into the home now she went up to St Patrick's in Dublin first and she ended up coming back to Besbra but my brother was born in there in the eight in 1982 and like talking like that now that adoption legislation came in they were still stealing babies off of these women and it actually scares me so much to think that Basically, when my mom gave birth to my brother, they both had separate, they had different blood types. Um, and because of that, there was complications when he was born. My mom nearly died and my brother nearly died. And in Besbra, they have their own hospital. 
Um, so this is where all the babies were born. But if something went wrong, the babies were always brought to St. Finbar's, which was the med or the maternal maternity hospital, as they're called. And he was born blue. So he had to be rushed to hospital. My mom nearly died. So she was in a coma for two weeks. And still to this day, she doesn't know what happened to her. She couldn't find her records. And this is why this kind of, I'm so invested in this particular bill because like, we want to find out what happened to my mom. But in talking about adoption and stuff, we are so lucky that my brother was so sick because he could have been one of those babies stolen by the congregation. And my mother would have been told he died because she was in a coma for two weeks and that's terrifying to me. Because mm -hmm. like even within the kind of reports that have come out um, and like and these are HSE reports and they acknowledge that the system was facilitated by doctors, was facilitated by social workers and religious orders and also like guardian people in authority who assisted with the literal shipping off of these children. And this report states that there are people who still work in the system they are still there um and it's just like it's overwhelming to think that this could easily happen again because there are people who were okay with it then and they could be equally as okay with it now and that's i think why i'm personally so angry about this bill in particular and how it was so rushed and how no one seems to be getting justice let alone the victims you know and I think the thing is as well, and we see it, like I constantly bring this up and I actually had a seminar, funnily enough, the week before this all happened, where we were discussing memory and how things are remembered, especially in Ireland and especially in this country. And they began talking about like the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes. And I thought their use of language was very interesting. And interesting is definitely not the right word because I began to become very, very frustrated with it. It was very much like, this was Ireland of the past. This was the way it was. There was a kind of like, not necessarily from the students or the lecturer. I thought the conversation that they facilitated was amazing and so, so interesting and so like open. And I'm not forcing any, like that's not, there's no blame on them. But the discussion was like, well, this was Ireland of the time. And we, we do that a lot, especially with Irish history. We go, well, that's, that was our past. That's what we were like. And we don't like to talk about it because there's this massive shame culture within Ireland. Exactly. But I found myself getting so frustrated because the last um, mother and baby home closed in October 1996. Like I have relatives who were born before then. And I have relatives that were born with uh, like outside of wedlock. I have relatives that were requested and I'm using air quotes there requested to go to a mother and baby home but thankfully I have other relevance relevance other relatives in my family that are extremely strong figures that would never ever let that happen and um I'm not going into major detail on that because that is not my story to tell that is not my information you know and I think that we talk about it in the way like not necessarily us I feel like people in our generation are much more empathetic but I feel like a lot of the legislation and a lot of the articles that talk about it talk about it in this really abstract way as if it happened so long ago as if the people that lived through these things aren't still alive but a lot of them are and that's the terrifying thing is that if we believe that this is like in the history this is the past this is our past we cannot take I'm not being very eloquent at the moment, but we can't take those steps to try and fix these problems if we believe it's in the past and they're no longer fixable. Those people mm -hmm. are still alive. 
We have mm-hmm. seen apologies. We got an apology from Enda Kenny. And I am very happy to debate that this that that apology was just a performance because there has been no equity. There's been nothing put behind it to prove that this apology actually means something. Mm-hmm. And like just kind of talking about accountability, um, Tara, what do you have any faith in the current government to provide any form of accountability or any form of real apology or reparation? Because there's this whole section you go to the Wikipedia section because there's actually nothing under ma- mother and baby homes. It's only Magdalene laundries, which fuels this like kind of misconception that it was all church, no state. Will the state ever actually realize and put their hands up and genuinely try and fix what they've done? Or will they continue letting things, even modern day comparisons? I think direct provision is a modern day mm-hmm. kind of like, it is a modern day Magdalene laundry. There are countless like, cases of abuse and so many stories I've heard and seen even with the emergence of social media around this topic do you think that there will be ever be a a realization or we have to wait until our generation steps into the doll to really show you know change real change permanent change yeah it's kind of a difficult one for me because I've never in my life had any faith in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Like those are the two parties that prop this system up and we can't forget it. They are the ones who don't want this to come out and they're the ones who've been like keeping it under wraps for so, so long, gaslighting survivors, lying to survivors, not listening to them. And call me biased, but I do know a lot of TDs in the Green Party who are horrified to see the damage they've done, but they have absolutely no power in this coalition none whatsoever they basically managed to drop this on a green first term minister to deal with let him take the entire flack for it and the green party didn't put up so much as a a fight and i know this sounds awfully cynical but i'm thinking in sort of more political terms that this entire thing has been a shambles and i will never agree with what was done to these survivors in a million years but in terms of politics i can't see the green party having any sort of leverage to try and fight against this even though they believe that what happened was completely wrong because they have no political leverage whatsoever. So I think either we all take to the streets when COVID is over or we're going to have to wait for a more progressive government because without either of those two things, I don't see survivors getting the justice they've been waiting for. for Yeah, no, um, yeah, so um, Jessica, like, how do you think... um, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will ever react to these? Do you think they'll ever actually put up their hands and be like, we've done this? Or will they continue to prop up systems which do ultimately profit them? Because I've done research as well into, you know, uh, businesses who do use, who did use Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes as like institutional kind of factories. You know, they did supply a lot of, you know, very wealthy businesses, particularly in Dublin. And direct provision is essentially run for profit. It's run for millions in profit um, by the same kind of companies who run the American jail system. Will Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ever realize the amount of blood that's on their hands or will they just continue being, you know, the equivalent of the Tories here, which is, you know, what I think of them anyways. Yeah. I'm not, it's a hard question to answer because like, if you're talking about Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil now, they will stand up and say, we're sorry for what our predecessors did. It wasn't them. And it's as if it's 
a thing that they can hide behind but what I don't think a lot of these TDs realize and like I'm not bashing anyone I'm not bringing politics into this like these men and women are very educated in their own right and they probably know exactly what they're doing they're a lot smarter than any of us for what they're hiding um but they I don't feel like are ever going to take full accountability for it because they're hiding behind the screen of well this wasn't us but by hiding it they're facilitating what their predecessors did and like for example like I when I was doing my own research reading through these um countless amount of reports and like government letters and articles and whatever like there was never any political parties mentioned so like when it said the state was paying for these women within these homes it never said Fianna Fáil was paying for them or it never said Fianna Gael was paying for them but when I was looking back years and I was fact checking I made a table out and it was when this thing was said or this awful thing was done who was in power and never once did I see the Green Party if they were even a thing back then I never once saw Labour and I never once saw Sinn Féin and they were the probably three parties who were most prominent opposition to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because like even if you look back to the foundation of our state the two of them have been basically the only people ever in power so who else was facilitating all this wrongness and state involvement if it wasn't them so like mm -hmm. Enda Kenny's apology to me, I actually listened or read the transcript of it today and he, I personally don't think he's being sincere because it's kind of like, Joan, you look at the guards or where you look at like the priests or whatever, when someone does wrong, they're never fired or unless they really, really messed up, they're always moved to another town or they're always kind of pushed down the system this yeah. is kind of the same thing here that's happening. They're kind of covering up for the people that went before them in hopes that they can keep going forward because I honest to God think, and don't quote me on it, I honest to God think that this mother and baby home controversy at the moment has the power to bring down the government if anything goes wrong. Because one thing I found out as well during my recent research is, do you know the bill that's causing all the confusion that the yeah. commission was actually made under the 2004 bill? Um, Michal Martin, who is now our Taoiseach, was actually Minister for Health and Children when that bill was created. Mm -hmm. So I have an awful feeling, now I could be wrong, I could be wrong in the man, um, I have an awful feeling that there could be issues going back that far, that yeah. they're saying, okay, because even I've heard people talk about this online, that was there something he was involved in back then or was covering up for back then that they don't want getting out while he's still Taoiseach? Mm. Like, are we burying these reports for 30 years? Because we have to remember as well, this bill back from 2004 doesn't say you have to put them away for 30 years. It gives them the option to. So why are they choosing to? Do you know that kind of way? And that's what makes yeah. me think, are we ever going to get an apology from the estate? Because these survivors, they deserve closure. Exactly. Yeah. After all, everything said and done, they deserve their closure. And I think like even going back to that speech, like, I have I have the speech up in front of me and I think uh, like uh, as you said it, the speech doesn't come across as sincere and there's a bit that stands out to me and I know when he said it he said it in a kind of ironic way but he said women of that era had an amazing capacity 
to self-impregnate. And obviously by that, he meant that the onus was always put on the women. And he said this ironically, but it's also that use of language. It's that women of that era, as if this wasn't something that happened within his lifetime. He's saying this as if it's something of the past. And they loved, the Irish government loved to do this. I've really noticed this. they love to abstract things so that people do not feel things emotionally and empathetically. Um, and another quote that springs to mind is, we, we buried our compassion, humanity and mercy. And once again, this is all in the past tense. This is stuff that's happened in the past as if we are not continually burying our compassion, as if we're not continually burying our humanity and we're not continually burying our mercy. Like he described this place as a chamber of horrors and yet it's like we're, we're seeing they're hiding the information from us for 30 years. And if he knows this, if he describes this place as a chamber of horrors, his words, may I add, why doesn't he want us to see inside that chamber? Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah. And actually, I remember watching this when it happened. And my father, who's been a member of Fine Gael his entire life, turned around to me and said in less polite terms than I'm going to use now, he said, my eye. Like, even my father, who had supported that party his entire life, did not believe that that was sincere. And there's no way it was, because it's like we always say, Bart de her like, act, actions are louder than words. They're covering it up still, because their parties are full of family members and cousins and wives' families, and anyone there now has someone that can be implicated in this, if it comes out. And they truly are trying to cover themselves. And it begs the question, how on earth did we let them do this to us? And how did we not stand up at the time and stand up whenever this commission was put forward and said, no, you, you don't get to cover this up anymore. Like, I don't know if any of you studied Antriel for the Leaving Cert, but that book is yeah, about... Yeah. Yeah, that book was a written, realistic yeah. account. Yeah, and that was written in 1964. People have known about it for that long. And even with the church, like sort of loosening its stranglehold on the state, there hasn't been a mass movement that has gained strength among the people of Ireland, not just the survivors, but the people standing up and saying, you know what, no, these people deserve justice. We are going to fight with them for it. We can't let the survivors fight with them anymore. And I think it, one thing has come out of this week that's good. It's that people are finally understanding what happened people are finally standing with survivors and hopefully we'll be able to put enough pressure on the government to let them get these archives. Yeah. Even like my mum, she has always been very vocal about her time in the home. She actually doesn't remember a lot of what happened in there. She, when I say she was one of the lucky ones, I, you know what I mean. She was very ill while she was in there. So she, was, she wasn't put to work because she had to be in bed because she was very ill. But even like she's only starting to come to terms with this now. And like my brother is nearly 40. Like it's only the last few days. And like I've had to sit down and like it's not a taboo subject in my home at all. But like it's through me doing this research that like we've kind of understood. Oh, my God. Yeah, you are one of those survivors. Like, you know, you deserve this clarity as much as anybody else. And like to think of like her case now, obviously, it's an awful thing to have happened to anyone but there's always someone within the system who had it worse. So like, how are they dealing? Or like these people that went to their graves without getting any 
sense of closure like it really frustrates me and what really 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 frustrates me is that I remember when I was doing my research have you ever heard of I'm going to butcher his name now um Conal O'Faraha or something like that he's um a specialist in all this he's a journalist and he works for the examiner and he basically like this is his area of expertise is mother and baby homes and he wrote when the commission was created in 2015 for this investigation he he says obsessed databases and archives it doesn't how you went about it in this article but he actually got um and when the government sent McAleese to instigate um, the Magdalene laundries, um, they actually found the discrepancies within Tume and within Besborough. Because when you look at Tume, there's how many? 800 and something babies that were found down that chamber. And within Besborough, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, they didn't keep death records at all. They had, sorry, I tell a lie, they kept debt records, they didn't keep burial records. And like that mm-hmm. was what my dissertation was based on, like was debt records and burial practices and the legality of all of it all. Um they among they kept all the debt records of women, the burial records of women, but nothing of children. So there's actually 800 missing babies from Besbra that they have no clue where they are, and that's what this final report is waiting to come out because that's what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And they knew, the government knew back in 2012 when the Magdalene Laundry report came out that these discrepancies were there um, within these two homes, but waited until three years later to even set this commission up. So that's mm-hmm. what makes me extremely angry. If anything else mm-hmm. makes me angry, this makes me furious. So like, mm-hmm. it brings back the question again of what exactly is it that they're hiding? Yeah, because yeah. like... It is such an important, because um, you're, you're completely right, like the actual burial records aren't anywhere to be found. Um, and particularly, it was the work of Catherine uh, Corliss that caught my attention because she's a completely amateur historian. She kind of started her work very prominently in 2012 when she was collecting um, like an uncovered names of children who had died in Tuam especially. Well, you look at these records and she has publicly, like she was on the late, late show when she said this, and she said that there are death records, but because there are no burial records, you know, it's we will never know how many there is because the nuns used to allege that the grandparents had taken the bodies and buried them in coffins. Um, and because there are coffin deaths as well, they don't know, they will never know. We will, we, and that's, that's the thing that also riles me up. We will never know how many people. Yeah. yeah. Just and sorry gone. to cut across you here now, but as well, until like 1940 something you didn't physically have to register a stillborn baby as a death you had to acknowledge to the relevant minister that look we had a stillborn baby here but they were never registered so like within all these debt records that we do have because like I've I looked at St Patrick's I think it was called Pelletstown when I was researching it Tume and Besborough, those are my three homes that I researched. Each of them had immaculate debt records according to the commission. I never saw them myself. But within that, when they looked, especially at Pelletstown and St. Patrick's, they buried all their dead in Glasnevin. 
which is a private cemetery, um, but they still followed public guidelines. They kept everything in check, but that's only because within that mother and baby home, government officials work there, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, they found they should have been only, we'll say, 700 children in there, but they found like 850. So like they were 150 stillborn children that never had to be recorded. They were doing nothing wrong. There was nothing in the, the government or the law that made them record them they just had to let the government know look we had a few stillborns there but that they didn't have to record them and that makes me think how many children died in their early days that were passed off as stillborns yeah and there's uh i'm gonna bring in another end of kenny quote here because i think it's a really interesting speech to pull up and i know i keep coming back to it but i think it's very important that we acknowledge what was said and how long ago it was said as well and in the speech he said the government was adamant that these aging and elderly women would get the compassion and the recognition for which they have fought for for so long deserved so deeply and had until now been so abjectly denied the reality is that for 90 years ireland subjected these women and their experience to a profound and studied indifference and when that speech was given the implication from those words is that this will be changed that from now on this will never happen again and yet we are still we are still seeing a profound and studied indifference from the government you know and i like i i it's so hard to explain to people that these these are real people these are not just figures these were people's children these were babies these were lives these were sisters these were people mm -hmm. and people are like i it's like the government, and I'm not saying, look, I'm obviously generalizing here. Not every politician is the same. And some of them I think are fighting to no end. And I, it's wonderful, but why the government doesn't see this situation with any empathy is the hardest thing for me to comprehend. And we are back. Um, we took a five minute break. You listening did not. So <laughs> um, I think now we, when we're talking about this, like the mother and baby homes, the Magdalene laundries, we have to acknowledge the context within which it happened and not this is not me saying the context within which it, it excuses it that's not what i'm saying we have to be aware of the relationship between women and the catholic church that has happened since the foundation of this state and how completely toxic it, it, it is and the treatment of women isn't just limited to these mother and baby homes um, and the thing i would like to bring up because i've talked to my granny about it a lot is the practice of churching and a lot of people don't know what this is. So basically, churching was where women after childbirth were basically not allowed to enter the church for a certain number of weeks. Um, as far as I'm aware, it did vary from priest to priest. It did depend on their kind of discretion. But for the most part, talking to my granny, she said it was usually about six weeks. Um, and basically what it was, was um, kind of like, it was seen that a woman was unclean after childbirth um, was kind of the implication. And there's a really interesting article on the journal, which I would very much recommend. Um, and it's called Churching. Women after childbirth made many feel new, sorry, I'll say that again. Churching women after childbirth made many new mothers feel ostracized. And uh, what is really interesting reading underneath is I believe strongly in the, the idea that we are formed by our past. So I tried to understand how the practice of churching in 1930 Ireland, 1913, Ireland affected the women cleansed of the sin of childbirth. 
Um, this is written by Louise Lewis um, on 31st of October 2013. Um, a very good read and I definitely recommend it. And it talks about like churching in 1913. This was something that happened for years and years and years. Like this was happening when my parents were born, that they had to be churched. You were not allowed into the church because you were seen as unclean for having a child. And I, like I always, whenever I talk about this and then whenever I talk about the relationship between the church, women and children, I always go back to the point that the Catholic church, like I, I'm obviously speaking about the Catholic church from an outside position. I am not Catholic myself. And to be honest, at the moment, I obviously don't affiliate myself with any organized religion, but the Catholic church definitely has, is, is very, the word I'd like to use is very enamored with the mother Mary. And that's absolutely no secret. But when it comes to any other mother, we don't see that same energy, to put it simply. And I know that's putting it very flippantly, but I think it's interesting to see an institution which holds um, the Mother Mary to such a high standard and as this devout, reverent being, but yet cannot treat women with the same respect. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, actually, it's so untrue. On churching, um, I remember talking to my granny about this, and this was, I was maybe 10, and my granny would never shied away from this sort of thing, so she was a practicing Catholic, all of the above, but she was also like an ardent feminist, and she knew when she saw something that, wasn't wrong, that was wrong or didn't actually fit with the Bible that she had read, so whenever she was having my, my mom and um, her siblings, she remembers fighting with a priest over being churched and now my granny lived in the north at that point and I mean institutional abuse in the north is a story for another day but she remembers fighting and refusing to be churched and the only reason she got away with it was because she was a teacher and she was a teacher in a good school she had like a very good reputation and her husband was a dentist and without that who knows what could have happened in that situation like there's this whole implication of how money can literally buy you um, your freedom within Catholic Ireland because so currently within my own degree we're looking at institutions within um, Ireland and it wasn't even when you're looking at mother and baby homes yeah they were run specifically like as almost you know these maternity hospitals and I'm using that in air quotes because they weren't maternity hospitals they're maternity prisons um, Magdalene laundries were used to basically suppress the will of women and break them um, there was this fabulous, well, not fabulous quote, but it summed up so well that under Catholic ideology and the patriarchy, women would never be enough. Um, they could never live up to this impossible standard. If they broke this standard in any way, they could easily be thrown into um, this like system, this institutional abuse. There is this really, an, it's such an honest account, but there's a book called um, Bird's Nest Soup. And it is the, the detailing of what it was like in a Magdalene asylum. Um, and the woman in question was 19 years old when she was put in. She was put in for two decades. And the reason why she was put in was she had PTSD from uh, being a nurse in the Blitz. Um, and that was it. Her mother did not want to take care of her. And so put her in there for arrest, arrest, like, to, like almost like hysteria. And there's this whole implication that if you're a woman, you're more prone to being insane. You're more prone to uh, feminine hysterics. 
And it's so strange how the church actually treats mental health because mental health is seen as an inherently feminine thing. Um, and it's just through all kind of accounts, you know, anyone who shows their emotions more is more likely to be feminine, even if they're a man. And it's just this whole concept of if you break this set standard, you can just be thrown away. No one cares what happens to you. And it's like, I don't know. It's just really weird to read these accounts um, detailing women's health in particular because many doctors were men and the only kind of real female healthcare workers were nuns. It just really, really makes you think about the institutions within our country. Yeah. And even, even on a lighter note, sorry, do you want to talk to me? No, go ahead. On a lighter note, like not the severity of mother and baby homes or whatever, but like the Catholic church has such like mirrored vision when it comes to mental health and like all these kind of things. Like I went to a kest. I've always been in a Catholic school. I'm not, I was a Catholic, not a Catholic anymore, but all the schools in my area are Catholic. So we had not really much choice. And like we were a kest school and like, even though it wasn't run by nuns or whatever, like the administration of my school would have been very, very religious. And I remember when I was in sixth year, like I suffer from diagnosed um, anxiety and depression. And I was kind of coming to terms with it when I was in sixth year, obviously the stress of the leaving starts and all that kind of stuff. And I went to my deputy principal, I think, one of the two, I can't remember. And I was after writing a letter to Richard Bruton because I think in this particular week, there was about five suicides within my town and surrounding areas of young people my age or younger. So I wrote a letter to the, the, I think Richard Bruton was the minister for education at the time. Um, I did my leaving cert in 2017 and I wrote then and I brought it up to her because I felt that it was important for everyone in my year to read it because it was an account of my experience and what I see in school and like what changes need to be done. This is now before there was ever like a wellness class or anything. And we'd war inside the hall, inside the office. Like I won't go into what she taught or said to me or whatever, but it was the pure and utter just like Catholic vision of go away now, don't be talking about that kind of stuff. And the kind of that, she, without saying it, she basically told me I'm crazy. Mm. And now she ended up apologizing to me afterwards um, because I caused war I'm not a very I'm not a person you can get to shut up if I have something to say so like I went about it and I was like no you're wrong and uh, after a while she eventually apologized to me and still to say it's a high tour going down the street or whatever but like it just goes to show that even on smaller issues in today's climate that mental health is always like pushed down so like if something as small and when I say as small you know what I mean I don't mean anxiety is a small thing but like in comparison to the trauma women would have faced going into these homes, like how are they being suppressed if things like anxiety are being suppressed today? Do you know what I mean? It Absolutely. just makes you think like. Yeah, and it's worth jumping in here now that the government has weaponized mental health in order to try to avoid lockdowns. They have done this now in the last few weeks and now they have re-traumatized survivors and women who went through these horrific ordeals. And it just shows that we still don't care about mental health. Like our government is still paying lip service. I think they give a tenth of what mental health organizations asked for in the budget to them. Like, it's unbelievable how we still sort of see it as something dirty and something that should be secret, even after all the work people have done. 
you know, like I, I was about to jump in and say the exact same thing, that mental health's definitely been weaponized and I've seen it throughout this pandemic, that the excuse is, well, what about people's mental health? And my point is you didn't care about people's mental health until it suited your own agenda. Because I am someone who has gone through, and I'm very, I like even within myself, I am very, very private about my discussions of mental health, even when it comes to close friends, even when it comes to family members, because I feel like there is such that there is definitely a massive shame culture in Ireland that we believe we shook off because we are this liberal, wonderful, forward-thinking state, but we're not. We still live on this, like, I don't know, like this foundation of shame almost is the only way I can describe it. And I have been through the public mm. mental health system and I can tell you from firsthand experience, and this is not something I like, it's, I'm very private about the fact that I have been through these systems. Talking about this is like, this is how serious it is. I, from firsthand experience, these are massively underfunded. Like the waiting lists are atrociously long. If you are an emergency case, you are still left for months. And I mean months and months and months and months and months on a waiting list. Like you could easily wait up to 18 months and you're an emergency case. Imagine if you're not an emergency case or what they like, like categorize as emergency. And I think the thing is in this country and it's, it's true across the world. I don't think it's really individual to this country, but in this country, we have to wait until we're at breaking point before we reach out for help. And like Ireland has the fifth highest rates of male suicide in Europe. And the reason for that is, is because we are not, we exist within a realm of shame. We don't talk about these things until it's too late. And when we do talk about these things, it's always, oh, well, we, it's skimmed over. It's like, well, it'll be fine now. That was in the past. That was something that's already happened. There's nothing we can do about it now, move on. And that's mm -hmm. always the attitude. And we never ever get to heal from our trauma, whether that's personal or national. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is the thing. Like I remember last week, survivors were saying why didn't you consult with us this has been thrown at us like a bolt out of the blue and I remembered that I was assaulted once when I was a lot younger and I don't mind talking about it but anything small can re-traumatize re you a lot and I was at home all last week thinking about all these women all these children all these people who had been through so much weren't able to get the support they needed were basically lied to abused and this was all facilitated by the state and I was sitting at home last week thinking they have talked so much about mental health and I cannot imagine how many people have gone through re-traumatisation over what the government has done this week. Like there is, there is definitely a lack of empathy and a lack of remorse from the government. Now, I, like people yeah. are, feel free, this is just my personal opinion, obviously. People can disagree with me at any point. Like I'm not claiming this is a solid fact that there's no remorse because performatively they have said they feel remorseful for what has happened. But I am always going to pull up the fact that, yeah, okay, you have remorse for the mother and baby hunts, but let, yes, you let direct provision centers move forward. Yeah, you let these institutions continue to thrive because they make money. And that's all you care about at the end of the day. They have stopped reporting the suicide and death rates in direct provision centers. Yeah. What do they not want us to know? If they exactly. if these like, things are as fine and as safe as they claim they are, surely those should be open facts and figures. That is the mm -hmm. same thing with the reports from the mother and baby homes. Surely if it is not as bad or if it's, you know, if it's something that needs to be talked about, why don't you just show us the facts and figures? What are you hiding from us? What are you ashamed? Exactly. And like, 
as you were saying with them being performative with regards to mental health, like I remember at the start of this podcast, Tara was saying that like this whole thing about the final report of the mother and baby homes coming out came out of the blue and he randomly brought this out. And that goes back to a lot of this final report should have been with us two years ago. And what prolonged the thing was when they found the second chamber structure in Tume and they had to do all that kind of stuff there that dragged it out for two years and we should have had like the report that was released last year which was the fifth interim report should have been out in 2017 and we should have had the final report last year and it was due for publication because I remember I was doing the um, research process for my dissertation up until January of this year and I was holding out to really like concrete down my title because I was waiting for this last report to come out to finalize my findings and I was waiting and I was waiting and I remember my advisor sat me down he said Jessica we're going into an election here now and they're not going to publish that that now is at their back burner so they jeopardized these survivors who were wait like if I was so eagerly waiting on this for research purposes how were the the survivors feeling waiting to hear their history so like that must have like put an awful strain on them so first of all it was pushed back because they didn't give a certain date because of the election because of and then uh, it was supposed to be june and um, it was supposed to be june then but then the pandemic happened and all the committee members were working remotely so whatever so then they asked for it to be october which is supposed to come out the 30th but whether it will or not we we don't know and that's why there's such the rush to get through because apparently like I said I don't really know much about the legalities of it that commissions have to delete their information or whatever before it's released I don't know so that's why there's the rush but what my point here is and I'm I'm an awful habit of going on a tangent you probably have guessed that by now um the they had no regard for how that five month or six month wait nine month wait had on these people waiting for that information so like mm-hmm. why are they using mental health to like mm-hmm. facilitate their own political views when it suits them like this like mental health isn't an arrow to shoot at people it's not a weapon it's not something that you get to pick up or we'll use it here because it suits us it's a really serious thing and people suffer at different degrees at different points in their life and like what tara says it doesn't take a lot for re-traumatization to kick in and it just baffles me that they're taking this thing and using it to their advantage when they shouldn't like. Yeah, and all the comparisons with recreation actually. Like there's no supports available to current victims. If you do think about it, all the support groups that there are are voluntary, also like fellow victims as well. So they claim mental health is so important and then they don't even provide a support service helpline website that's state funded in any form like it, it's just boggling um Tara you mentioned direct provision just there yeah actually I was just thinking about the comparison between direct provision and the Michael Laundries and mother and baby homes and I actually saw a fantastic quote yesterday about I don't know if you saw the children that drowned trying to seek asylum and somebody said I'm not sure who it was but it's a fantastic quote that said something along the lines of keep a close eye on how your government treats those who come to your country for refuge because that is how they would treat you if they could get away with it and the funny thing is they can treat people in direct provision like that and they treated the women of Ireland like this and they t- treated children who were born out- outside of marriage like this and the comparisons with direct provision are so so true and the fact that the government won't help people who survive one system or in the middle of another one says a lot 
and it's really damning to the government because they clearly don't care and they don't understand the issues that people who are not privileged face in this country. Because when I was doing my initial research into this, I, I had heard of um, institutions like other institutions in Ireland using Magdalene laundries as a form of, you know, way of actually doing business. They actually did their uh, fabrics, etc. Um, and so one of the major things that I found was when there, there was um, basically in Dublin, there was a Magdalene Laundry and is run by the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity. And it was due to them losing money in the stock market in 1993 that they sold land. And in this plot, there was 133 corpses. Um, they arranged to have them buried in Glasnevin. Um, but there was late, it was later uh, found out that there was more than they had applied for. So in their reburying, they had lied about how many people they had found. And it was due to them losing money on the stock market. Um, and then the Irish Times later in the 90s were able to reveal that um, Ars Neutron, Guinness, Cleary's, the Gacy Theatre, uh, Dr. Stevens Hospital, the Bank of Ireland, the Department of Defence, the Departments of Agriculture and Fisheries, the CIE, the Port Marnock Golf Club, Clontarf Golf Club, and several leading hotel chains used Magdalene laundries for labour. And that's why I'm just so convinced of government collusion. Like there's no way that they're not trying to hide more. If we know this, there's definitely more they're not telling us. And it's worse than this. And I hate to be the speculation. I hate to be the speculator, but like we can yeah. see direct provision happening in front of us. And it just needs to, it needs to stop because it's the same people. Something interesting that I saw online was that now again I'll say complete and utter conspiracy, or whatever, but it's something I think has a lot of resonance what we're speaking about. Somebody said, like obviously there's a lot of confusion about the bill that was passed, the act of 2004. No one actually knows really the implications of either one side says one thing, another side says the other. I personally don't know even know what to think about it anymore. But somebody said, I think it was online, they said that, I saw it on Twitter. So basically the government right now is in a catch-22. So if they release the reports and let people access what actually happened, they're, they're not in a good position. I was going to say another word, but I won't. They're not in a good position. But if they keep a lock on it and hide it away, they make it obvious that they're hiding something. So they're still not in a good position. So basically they're in a catch-22. No matter what way they turn, they're going to get rebuttal from the Irish public. So what is so bad that they're hiding that they'd rather take the wrath of the Irish public for not releasing the reports? Like what is it that they're hiding that they would rather take the stick that we're all giving them? They got upwards of 50,000 emails this week alone about mother and baby homes like what is so bad because like even during my own research like I found like quotes from ministers and TDs that were on about like these children that were born illegitimately that they didn't see them as human they were a complete waste of resources and they were just like that's why you see all these babies like Tume and Besborough where they were completely disregarded burial wise because why waste our resources on them to bury them when we could spend that money somewhere else and it was a power thing so like 
if there's things that we know like I know a lot of these things you might know other things like there's things that we know for facts at the moment and they're unthinkable like I remember having to take two or three week breaks from reading these reports because the stuff was it was harrowing and I don't cry easily and I was in floods so like it leads me to think like if this is what we know and this is bad what atrocities are they hiding so like it leads me to believe that like there's definitely state collusion there like in awful terms yeah you've only scratched the surface that's the thing and I think that's terrifying Mm. it's terrifying the more we think about it because if that's only the surface what is going on underneath Mm -hmm. like money yeah no just on the topic of money uh an article literally came out in the Irish Times maybe a half hour ago that popped up on my phone and it says mother and baby's home baby homes will report will increase calls for state redress the cabinet is told so basically the cabinet has been told that the publication will lead to calls from former residents and campaigners for state apology financial redress and considerable reports for victims and they just don't want to do it that's the thing they do not want to do it they do not want to atone for their sins even though they made these women atone for their sins and like there's always money involved. There always, always is. And they just don't want to part with it. Like the fact of the matter is that any apologies the state may or may not have given are meaningless. An apology is meaningless without equity. Mm-hmm. There has been absolutely no equity in for any of the survivors. No one has had to pay for their sins and it always comes down to money. It always comes back to money. Mm-hmm. And like just speaking of kind of money and profitability, we were discussing because we had a break in between, obviously, because, again, if you need to take breaks listening to this, um, please do, because it's a very heavy topic to listen to for over an hour, which I expect this podcast will be. But we were talking about how um, there the current um, uh, Center for Direct Provision uh, member citizens um, so basically they're setting up a center specifically for victims of sex trafficking and the uh, kind of the institution that will run it uh, is tied to the sisters of the Good Shepherd who ran Magdalene Laundries and it's just kind of implying and it is like everyone who has researched them it is heavily implied that they're not protecting victims of sex trafficking they're locking them up to prevent them from doing sex work they are in a way denying them their human rights because they cannot make money they cannot register for welfare while in direct provision they are not a citizen of ireland they can they cannot get jobs they are taking advantage of the of majority women um, who are in direct provision and have no other form of income and it's happening right in front of us it's this one specific area of direct provision which terrifies me that people aren't paying enough attention because I know current like uh, feminist activists in Ireland who are tr- who are desperately calling for more people to pay attention to this and obviously we'll be linking um, petitions and also email formats which are very handy um, in the bio of this episode but it is just horrifying to cop on to the fact that these abuses continue on today and no and the government hasn't taken accountability for them like direct provision is ultimately for profit we realize that um and it's just like it disheartens me so much every time i'm rem- like because like, you think oh you know initially in this country because repeal happened we thought oh maybe things for women will get better 
and then we turn around and this is happening on like under the carpet like no one can see it I'd actually really like to come in here in Ruhama because I was involved with a policy group in the Green Party when I was still a member, which focused solely on the Green Party's policy around sex work. So I did a lot of reading, we did a lot of research for this, and what we found is that Ruhama refused to use the term sex work, which is a red flag for me in itself because it proves that you do not respect the wishes of sex workers that don't want to be called the other word that I won't use, because it is in their eyes a slur. They have completely, they have tied the idea of working in sex work to men being entitled to women's bodies, which in our day and age... Is Michael D. Um, so Tara, you know, when Michael D. signed this bill into law, what did you initially think you know because you've seen a lot of politics from your involvement with the young greens and even though a lot of people are saying this is the right thing you know what do you think of the confusion that kind of came out of it what do you think of the miscommunication that tds are giving to the irish people at the moment yeah so when i saw the president sign initially my first reaction was what until I was reminded by people who are far more have a quicker memory than I do that if he didn't sign that we couldn't challenge it so if he referred it on to the Supreme Court um, and it, 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 nothing was done in the end um, we couldn't challenge it after that so he has basically done what he can in this situation to make sure that the door is left open for people to challenge this um, in terms of the government I mean the storm has been about the Green Party, but I'm going to say something that may sound flippant until I explain it. It's not about the Green Party. And the entire problem is that this isn't about the Green Party. This is about the survivors. This is about the people who have been waiting for this for so long, people who have died waiting for this. And to be honest, I mean, the Green Party even shared that they'll never get a vote again. And to be honest, I'm extremely glad because the amount of damage they have caused in one week alone and I genuinely think that the government has shown how little it cares about trying to address institutional abuse, to address our history in this country. In college at the minute, I'm actually studying um, collective memory in France. And there are so many ties of what we see here because France created this whole idea that everybody in France is in the resistance and that nobody was responsible for anything that happened in the Holocaust. Whereas here, we are creating this whole idea of, well, so we didn't know, or maybe we knew that there's nothing we could do about it. And the government is perpetuating this, whereas at least France has come out and tried to atone for what they've done. And I hate to use the word atone, but it's, it's kind of fitting in this situation. They've tried to address them, create the collective memory they've created that is false, whereas our nation and our government especially are still trying to hide it, still trying to bury it underneath the carpet, and still trying to keep people stuck in limbo without any information and in constant pain. Yeah, because even I've done in college, like in my undergrad and currently my master's, I have done like a lot of research and like a lot of my modules have been about American collective memory and all that kind of stuff. And like I've kind of found ties myself within us and them because with regards to the Vietnam War with the Americans, like every president after it's kind of been a thing of, right, or Lyndon Johnson did such a bad things and he was with the Vietnam War. 
what can we do so that ne- that never happens again and that like kind of lives on with the Americans so like kind of it invertly like they kind of realize okay that was wrong we must move on and even though they never really do come out and say okay we're doing this because we want to kind of like move along we kind of do something completely different where we push it down (laughs) and it's like okay right and even if you look at the Germans with the Holocaust and like they teach it in school like they were still paying for their damages up until was it a few years ago they paid finally paid off their debts and like they learn about these things and they really like it's as if they immerse themselves in their history and like we like to think that we do like our collective memory leads us to believe that we're this liberal country and it's something we keep coming back to we're not and like if we can't perform like we should and like acknowledge what we've done when I say we like it's something that we need to do we need to take collective responsibility and as well as the government and say look it happened we are so sorry this is what we're going to do to help these survivors and whatever this is the report this is what was done wrong we are so sorry we're going to try our best to never do it again sort out direct provision and move on and it's never going to happen unless they can take their head out of the sand exactly like I do Mm -hmm. a lot of studying in collective memory because I I study theatre and like you might say how how is that in any way relevant to this conversation how is you studying theatre anyway relevant but we have to remember that theatre especially in this country is a mode in which we tell our stories Irish people are naturally storytellers and we have spent a lot of our recent lectures just coincidentally talking about collective memory and how we remember things and the way we remember things and how that affects future generations and I will always come back to this point when we talk about the Magdalene laundries not everyone but when there was a where when there is a collective discussion about the Magdalene laundries these discussions are often abstracted and they're kind of shown as this thing of of the past but we have to remember that this is still ongoing, that these people are still alive and these people still haven't healed from these problems. You know, just because it's a thing of the past for the Irish state, it's not a thing of the past for the people that experienced it, the people that are still experiencing it. And like you said, their trauma will stay with them. Their trauma will stay with them forever. And you can work through your trauma, but that doesn't mean it's not still there. So for us to flippantly Mm -hmm. say, this is the world of the past, uh, like the women of a past era, it's it's just a complete disregard of the people that are still alive and the people that are still suffering and the people that still don't have answers exactly like even during our break there a while ago I went downstairs to the drink and I went in and I was just telling my mom the kind of rundown because I did get permission from her to talk about her story and whatever and like my mom is a very open person and she's very like says as it is this is what happened I moved on or whatever and I went down and I told her how I told her story and like how we were speaking about different things and how we were really kind of bringing it into the present day. And I've never seen her smile like that in a long time. It's as if like, the, like my mom is a survivor. So it's coming from a firsthand count of like, oh my God, people actually care enough to like four girls to sit down and have a podcast speaking about these issues. Um, as someone that lived through it, like, I actually I can see her now she's standing by my door she can't wipe the smile off her face and it's something that like she might like she's never said this but like Joan can just tell I know that she doesn't feel confident to speak up about these things because she feels that she's not learned enough and like because like 
there's words I say to my mom in everyday speaking and she's like Jess can you please use English and I'm like all right sorry so like a lot of these people feel like because of their circumstances they mightn't have had the opportunity to go on in life and education and they like because a lot of people that went into these homes you must remember never came out so like mm-hmm. they don't have the means to tell their stories and those that do I have so much respect for like oh my god how hard must that be but like for a survivor to sit here right now and tell me that this is something that they want it's something that we have to keep going with yeah exactly like it's just remembering who this is all for is what's so important it's remembering that you know it's for the people of the past and it's also for the people of the future who we can protect and you know it's using our voices to, you know, raise for accountability that, that needs to happen. It's just, you know, you wonder what happens next. Like, you know, it's, I think our generation is very much like a, a self-learned one. We have researched ourselves. We are hungry for this history. We are hungry for this information. We have never been told the truth and we are demanding for it now. But you wonder how long it will take for the truth to come out and like Tara like what do you think like do you think a a 30 year seal is going to happen or do you think that they're gonna battle it out in the courts for the next few years I've been assured that they are trying to find a way around it Mm -hmm. now whether I believe they'll be able to or whether I believe that some people in the government want to is another story. But I do believe that there are good people in there trying to fix this. But I can only hope beyond hope that they actually manage to do this and not make an even bigger mess. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think that we can sit here and say, this is how it's going to go and this is how it can be sorted until that final report is released. Because Mm -hmm. that final report has, well, they lead us to believe that it has all the answers we're looking for. So, like, if that report comes out and it tells us everything we need to know, I reckon it could lead, pandemic or no pandemic, I reckon people will take to the streets over it. And that could be another reason why they're putting it off. But I personally just believe that regardless of these people's information being locked away and whatever, that this report that is supposed to be being published on the 30th of October is going to tell us a lot. It's supposed to be out tomorrow, so I don't think it's going to be released tomorrow, but it'll tell us a lot of what is going to happen because, like, even I think there was a report, I got an email, I don't know what our media outlet was, saying that the government assured, it was yesterday in cabinet meetings, that they're going to release the information they just don't know how they're going to do it yet but like even if it goes to Tulsa because that's what the actual 2004 says that basically Tulsa safeguards it for 30 years before it moves into the national archives and like if that's the thing sure Tulsa are the worst people to go through ever to try and get stuff done like you could be on phone calls yeah. like mm-hmm. they would you could be on hold for 30 40 minutes so like they There's might a- as well stay locked up for 30 years if it's going to go through Tulsa. There's mass yeah, agreed distrust in this country towards Tusla as well they have failed many 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 times yeah Um, yeah and they're uh, chronically underfunded and they're in Roderick O'Gorman's or they're under his ministry so like I have very little faith in Tusla even before this happened and now I mean I don't even trust them with information of my own never mind the information of how many survivors 
lockdown. Cause like, I, it's just, you, I want to know who thought of the 30 year seal. I want to know who said that the 30 year seal was a good idea. I want these people to come out and say why they don't want these records to be seen. And the thing is, and it's the most harrowing thought that I have had during this podcast, these records only are of like certain mother and baby homes. And it's not like the whole problem because it was both mother and baby homes and Magdalene Laundries that were working together. The Magdalene Laundries would receive repeat repeat offenders as they were called. Um, these were women who got pregnant more than once and that was deemed a crime at the time. They haven't been in get investigated properly. When will we see a proper investigation that is done by the state? We don't know. And it's just so like, you're, I just, there's so many questions that are left unanswered and none of us have the answers either. I think like- So frustrating as well that we look at the situation and our natural instinct is that we wanna fix it. We wanna do whatever we can. But the thing is, it's out, we are totally powerless to everything that's happening right now. And the thing is, we're never going to get the full picture. And I think that's the truth of the situation because they're never, ever, ever going to tell us the full truth. Because can you imagine how damaging that potentially could be? Like they're, like Jessica said it earlier, she made the point that what, what are they, like, what are they hiding? You know, it's not all like, yeah, okay. A lot of it is to do with money. They don't want to have to pay out and whatever about the monetary side of things, but what are they hiding? What do they not want us to know? If we know these bits of information that are so horrible and so horrific and that they're, we've found dead bodies, what is so bad that they don't want us to know? And that's the terrifying thing. And I think because of that, we will never ever get the full picture. But I hope and I pray and I'm trying to stay as positive as possible because I don't really want to end this on a downer, but I hope yeah. that we get the, as best a picture as we possibly can. Yeah, and, and ultimately it's us starting this conversation is our first step um, and telling people, as many people as we can to listen to this and listen to, this is only the surface. I have spent most of this week looking at reports, at media, at everything I could find there is so many resources and obviously they don't go into like the full details because they are majority survivors accounts. There's no real accounts that are there. As Jessica said, the ones that are there are kind of inaccurate. They have never reported anything that they did correctly, but there are things there. And there's this wonderful project, actually, it's the Magdalene Oral History Project where uh, survivors of the laundries uh, talked about their experiences. Um, there are, of course, uh, plays like on Trial. there are films like Philomena which are which was released in 2013 and that is a complete like it is such a it, it's not only a true story but also shows you how easy it was for the government to allow illegal adoptions to happen um yeah there's just there is so much and the first step is simply looking up like mother and baby home or looking up Magdalene Laundry, and you start to connect the dots yourself. And yeah. it is that self-education that we never, like, we never got this education. Just, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, things that have been omitted when we are taught our own history. And the truth is, is that because we don't know it. The government might, the yeah. establishment might, the state might, we don't know. 
but when it comes to the Magdalene laundries, there's so much more that we don't know than that we do know. And that's the, at the I end think- of the day. At the end of the day, history in every relative country is t- told in the way they want it. Yeah. Like, just as, as a quick example to make my point, I'll try and be as quick as I can. My brother, my sister, and my other brother grew up in England. And when they were in their history classes and they were being taught about England's history, we were taught as the savage Irish and that they had to come over to us to sort us out. And like they did a great thing by practicing colonialism on us because that's initially what the plantations were. They were practicing colonizing on us to see how it would go for the rest of the world. So like that's how the English tell their history, whereas we're told it as if to say we were invaded, which personally I would agree with, but that's another conversation. But so like with regards to states wrongdoing, they're the ones writing the history necessarily. So mm-hmm. why would they want to teach us about all these wrong that they did? Um, and to be perfectly honest, I think it's our generation. And I'm not trying to toot our own horns here, but Gen Z is a very, and it, people re- refer to it as American kind of thing, but I think it's just uh, being sick of taught lies kind of a thing. Where mm-hmm. we're seeing how all of the generations before us have been treated and how it's been so swept under the rug, not just mother and baby homes, but absolutely every element element of society. So like mm-hmm. we're very, like I think Eva said it earlier, we're very hungry for the truth. We're very like we want to know, all right, stop telling us the fairy stories, what actually happened? And mm-hmm. how can you now turn around and say we're sorry and move on? And like I just want to say thanks to the three of you. I know I've asked you on this podcast, but like the fact that this podcast is even a thing where you're willing to sit down and be like, right, this is my opinion, this is what I found, and all this kind of stuff. Like whether we realize it or not, it's things like this that inspire people. And like when you look at like the Black Lives Matter movements in America and stuff, it's majority of Gen Z is referred to basically as being the go-getters of the last century or whatever. And I think that with us, while we are power powerless to the bigger powers, which is the government, it's the noise that comes from the people that eventually trickles upwards. And I think that the fact that we're sitting down having this conversation is amazing and that it's going to rewrite history eventually. Yeah, just on that note, actually, I know that the government has all the power, but we give it to them. It's a social contract. We give them their power and we need to take to the streets as soon as this thing is over. God help us, hopefully it'll be soon. And we need to set no one outstanding for this because in recorded history, there's only really two things that have worked. It's revolution and people taking to the streets. And I don't know how feasible the revolution is. So we're going to have to try the, the latter option. Yeah, that's true. It is the breaking of the fairy stories because for a long time, Ireland has tried to pretend that it is this land of leprechauns and fairies and it's this beautiful Celtic land where nothing can go wrong. And, you know, we're, we're so ready for investment from, you know, the, the lovely Irish immigrants and their descendants in America and around the world. Um, and it's time for Ireland to accept that it's not this neoliberal, progressive, welcoming country that it is. There's a dark past and truth will hopefully bring light to that past, but it is ultimately down to us to bring that truth. Yeah, I think this is a, a good point to wrap up on. Yeah, um, I think this is definitely an excellent point to wrap up on. I think for us to be the land of a thousand welcomes, we have to start by welcoming our own. Yeah. Um, 
And on that note, I think we will wrap up. I would like to say a massive thank you to Tara and Jessica for their time, their thoughts, their research, everything. They've been so eloquent and so well-spoken. Their points, fabulous. Um, I really do thank you for your time. You've taken a, you've taken a chunk of three hours out of your, your lovely Thursday evenings to talk about this. And I'm so glad we had this conversation. And now I'm kind of pushing it to the listeners, to anyone listening. Try and spark these conversations around you. Try and talk to your parents. Try and talk to your grandparents. And I'm not saying you don't have to go as in depth as maybe we did in this because it's a hard conversation to have. But it's the uncomfortable conversations that make change. So on that note, um, you have been listening to Are You Two In Love Or? Our wonderful guests have been Tara Gilsonen and Jessica Daly. I have been Lucy Holmes and Eva has been Eva O'Byrne. Um, and we thank you for listening. There we go. That recording is stopped. <sighs> that was a great that was fantastic, everybody. Thank yeah. you. So Thanks much. so much for having us, Karen. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Me too. Um, I, mean I really enjoyed it. I mean, everywhere I've said, like, I'm so grateful for your time and your, uh, like, information. And that I've learned so much from this because there's so much I didn't know. So, thank so have I. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. Um yeah, I suppose dinner now after that. I'm starving. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna start. go back to read Public Shame. Nice, nice. Read read my it. face. I literally painted devil horns on my forehead earlier and they like I have three <laughs> layers of foundation on top of this. It will not come off. I think it's a look. You know what? I think you should just go for it. Yeah, I think Honestly, it's a look. Yeah. All I can say is thank God that this visual isn't being put out. It's our voices. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been like this. Yeah, our voices. <laughs> and I might have had to put makeup on. Um, no, thank you guys. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate it being asked. Thank you. I think we should make a pact that we lead the revolution once COVID is gone. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. will. Agreed. I'm down. Exactly. And if you ever want to tell all on the Green Party, give me a shout because I'm dying to tell some of these stories. <laughs> oh, I think <laughs> I'm sure I can find someone who'd love to listen. <laughs> it's okay. I'll twitch um, for now. <laughs> what's it called? Um, yeah, so I'll bop off because I also want to get some dinner. But it's been lovely talking yeah. to you all. Um, I been... just asked before you pop off, Eva. Um, yeah. When you publish this, do we listen to it first, or do we all just kind of listen to it once it's published? Um, I can I can send it to you beforehand if you'd like, uh, because I'll, I'll definitely have the time because it's coming out this weekend, so okay. I will have the time to edit and send you. I can send you the link, um, privately, and then you can just listen over to what you said and let me know if you want anything taken out or anything like that. Perfect. Grand, grand. That's great. Thank you. I'm going to go make I'm dinner now as well. I'm Rab. Guys, thank you for your time. Sorry for taking up so Not much. At all. Honestly, Not I would have spoken all. for longer if it was needed. So yeah, don't yeah. apologize. So so much. Yeah, and absolutely. Have you on and get to chat again. I'm such an honour to talk to both of you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Me too. And best of luck with the podcast, gang. I love it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> See you later. Bye, guys. Bye.